Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel and the battle spread. Israel was defeated by the Philistines who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring defeat upon us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Lord's Covenant from Shiloh so that it may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent men to Shiloh, and they brought back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. When the Ark of the Lord's Covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. Hearing the uproar, the Philistine asked, What's all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? When they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A god has come into the camp, they said. We're in trouble. Nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us! Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the desert. Be strong, Philistines. Be men, or you will be subject to the Hebrews, as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated, and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The ark of God was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. That same day, a Benjamite ran from the battle line and went to Shiloh, his clothes torn and dust on his head. When he arrived, there was Eli sitting on his chair by the side of the road, watching because his heart had feared for the ark of God. When the man entered the town and told what what had happened, the whole town sent up a cry. Eli heard the outcry and asked, What is the meaning of this uproar? The man hurried over to Eli, who was 98 years old and whose eyes were set so that he could not see. He told Eli, I have just come from the battle line. I have fled from it this very day. Eli asked, What happened, my son? The man who brought the news replied, Israel fled before the Philistines and the army has suffered heavy losses. Also, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead and the ark of God has been captured. When he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backwards off his chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broken and he died. For he was an old, he was an old man and heavy. He had led Israel 40 years. His daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant and near the time of delivery. When she heard the news that the ark of God had been captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she went into labor and gave birth, but was overcome by her labor pains. As she was dying, the woman attending her said, Don't despair, you have given birth to a son. But she did not respond or pay any attention. She named the boy Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel because of the capture of the Ark of God and the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband. She said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the Ark of God has been captured. This is the word of the Lord. Psalm 
So if you're new here, or haven't been coming regularly, what we're doing is we're preaching throughout the whole Old Testament. You know, the Old Testament is pretty much often, regrettably, a closed book. Not because we don't care about it, but because we read it and have no idea. It wasn't written to us, right? It may have been written about us, or it may have relevance to us, but it wasn't written to us. And so, you know, we have no idea what's going on. We're getting an overview of the entire Old Testament from beginning to end. Do I need to stand still or can I walk? Stand still. Oh, this is hard. Okay. And so we're trying to get an overview of the whole Old Testament. Now, I won't back up. If, if this is your first time here, never mind, come back another week and we'll back up other weeks. Because almost every other week we back up and get a whole view of what's been going on. But I want to start with something new today. Or We're going to look at this passage today. But before we can do that, I want to introduce you to a concept. A concept you know already, but probably don't know the terminology for unless you studied political science. What we want to look at today is legitimization. Religious and political legitimization and the role of God in legitimizing politics. Listen to these words. You know these words. You probably, like me, were afflicted with these words in high school. But probably, like me, no one ever told you what these words are all about. Listen to these familiar words. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are the, our life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the, govern, from the consent of the governed. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and to institute new government laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and their happiness. Skipping a little bit. When a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right it is their duty to throw off such government. Now, you know these words, some of them at least. They're familiar from the Declaration of Independence. Uh, but what was going on in the Declaration of Independence? Why were these words written? Some estimates are that about 10% of the elite in America at the time, were about to start a war that 10% of the American populace at the time opposed, but that was going to decimate the lives of about 80% of Americans who wanted nothing to do with it. They just wanted to be left alone. So if you're the elite and you're going to start a war and people are going to die, and it's not just that. Because at the time, there was still this notion propagated by governments 
That kings are a, a divine right. That it's the God who appoints a king and maintains a king. And if you're religious and you revolt, you not only are you rebelling against the king, the theory goes, you're rebelling against God. And so if you're the elite and you're going to start a war that's going to decimate lives, disrupt an entire government, overthrow the government, and risk offending the God who may have appointed that government, what do you got to do? You got to justify what you're about to do. And if that government was th claims to have been appointed by God, to justify overthrowing that government, you're going to invoke the name of God. And so the writers of the Declaration of Independence sought to legitimize their revolutionary fervor through the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. Well, at least all white males who own property are created equal. And they are endowed by their creator. You see, God comes in with certain unalienable rights. Deriving their, and governments derive their just powers from the consent of the government. From the consent of the governed. And it is the right of the people to alter or abolish that government when it becomes oppressive. And so when a long train of abuses and usurpations reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government. So you see what the Declaration of Independence is doing is legitimizing the American Revolution and using God to do so. You've got to get God in there. They're endowed by their creator. Now, now, mostly these men were not evangelical Christians. They, they didn't believe the God of the Bible. But at least they had the concept of there was some kind of creator somewhere. Maybe a lot of them were deists, not all of them. Some of them were evangelical Christians. But they had the concept that, that there is a God. And so they bring God into it. Because you need theological legitimization for any revolution. And you need political legitimization. So they invoke human rights. They invoke God. This was not unique, of course. Europe at the time was trying to separate. You know, Europe had suffered through the, what do we call it? The Holy Roman Empire. Europe had suffered through the unity of religion and politics, and it had become oppressive. So Europe at the time was trying to divide. But the American experiment was different. We were founded by the Puritans and by the Pilgrims. And the notion is that, that America was a, a city on a hill, a special place called by God to, to be a, a government and a country which manifests God's principles. And so you had this notion, this justification of the American experiment. And because of that, all American history has invoked God to support our government and to support our international relations. So now, there is a uh, the new senior pastor up at our sister church, Chinese Bible Church of Greater Lowell. Uh, his son is working on a Ph.D. in political science in the best of all places today in America to do a Ph.D. in political science, which would be the state of Ohio, because it determines who becomes president. Florida or Ohio determines who becomes president nowadays. And pretty much everything's balanced except for those are the swing states. 
Now, his PhD dissertation is this. What he's doing is he's examining how American presidents from the very beginning, even before the presidents, how American presidents and before, how American leaders, the elite, have used God to legitimize America's domestic policy, and he's particularly focusing on our foreign policy. So the Puritans were serious about this. And some of the Puritans risked their lives and their livelihood in order to evangelize Native Americans. Others invoked God to slaughter Native Americans. When it came time for the Revolutionary War, the Declaration of Independence and so forth, uh, pulpits were preaching in favor of the revolution or against revolution, using God to legitimize government. The Civil War, both the North and the South, invoke God to legitimize their cause. World War I, both parties, both sides of the conflict invoke God to legitimize. Government requires a legitimization. Violent overthrow of government requires legitimization. And God is invoked in both parts. And so lately, in the uh, Gulf War of uh, 2003, George Bush wrote these words. And by, he was by no means alone, no, by no means unique. He wrote these words. Hmm. The liberty we prize is not America's gift to the world. It is God's gift to humanity. And why we went to war in Iraq, at least one line of reasoning we went to war in Iraq, was so that God could use us to impart his gift of liberty to the people of Iraq. For which we pray every week because of ISIS. How did that work out? Now, this is not actually intended to be a political sermon. This is a fascinating thing for me to come here after teaching in Asia and coming here to this church where we had a previous tradition before I came here. We had a tradition of preaching through the Bible. Now, if you asked me when I came here, what is the Bible about? I was a seminary professor, okay? I know what the Bible's about. If you ask me when I came here, what is the Bible about? I would tell you the Bible is about how people can get saved and reconciled to God. How we can get to heaven, how we can know God in this life, how we can have our sins forgiven, how we can have a meaningful life with God. I would have told you that. Now, I wasn't entirely ignorant. I knew a little bit more than that. I, I, I knew what probably, or I quickly learned, what we've been doing lately is the Bible's about more than just how we can get saved. The Bible is also about God restoring creation. That, that God created everything beautiful in Eden. Beautiful and glorious. And then sin came in and everything was disrupted. Our relationship with God was disrupted. Our relationship with our spouses and our families was disrupted. Our relationship with creation was disrupted. Our relationship with our jobs is disrupted. And so now, with the whole Bible from beginning to end, what, what it's about is God's restoring all that. He's restoring our relationship with him in salvation. He's restoring our relationship with our families. He's restoring our relationship with creation environmentalism. He's restoring our relationship with our jobs, making them more meaningful, 
God's restoring everything. And in the end of Revelation 21, 22, we have the final solution to the problem that came up in Genesis 3. All of that. But the fascinating thing about coming here and being required by our pre-existing preaching roster to preach through the whole Bible is, I learned that the Bible is about a lot of other stuff. Now, one of the things I was grateful for when I first came and found out how you preach here, well, I was really grateful that they had done First and Second Kings before I got here. David Rowe, you know. good. I don't know how he did it, but good luck he did it. And I wouldn't have to face it for a while. Because, you know, all I knew about First and Second Kings, I was a New Testament professor. All I knew about First and Second Kings is there's a whole lot of names, and they're all kings. And most of them weren't very good. And what do you, how, how do you preach that? for 10 or 12 weeks. I was really grateful not to preach it. But now, well, here we are. We know we've preached through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. How am I doing? Judges, Ruth, and now we're in 1 Samuel. And 1 Samuel is when the kings first start popping up. And I thought, you know, I didn't have time. I'm, I'm working week by week. I didn't have time to think about this ahead of time. What am I going to do with this? Now, it's really helpful because in our midst lately, We've had a uh, Judaic studies professor from China, of all places. You know, it's not the obvious correlation you'd make. Judaic studies professor from China who made, who had written an article about the legitimization of kings in Israel compared to the legitimization of the emperor in China. Now, instantly everything clicked. I didn't know anything about the legitimization of kings in Israel. Oddly enough, because of my research, I knew something about the legitimization of emperors in China. <laughs> you wouldn't think, would you? <laughs> but it makes perfect sense. You know, God gives us this book, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. And what do we think it's going to be about? We think it's going to be about how God saves us from our sins and gets us into heaven and gives us a meaningful life in this age. And what is it about? It's got a little bit about that. But mainly, what it's about is the same kind of thing every government throughout history, whether imperial China or historic America, World War II Japan, every government, contemporary Singapore, every government in every place is always about self-legitimization. And 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel is about legitimization. Legitimization of the religious leadership and legitimization of the political leadership. If these people are going to govern our country, we got to know what authority they have to do so. Who gives them the right to tell us how to live if they're religious leaders? Who gives them the right to draft us into the army and to tax us if they're political leaders? That's what First Samuel is about. A very current issue that we face as Americans. And not only is it about that general issue that we all face, it's about even, it's more intense because here's what's going on. In First Samuel, you're going to have regime change. Like in the Revolutionary War. When we shifted from monarchy, foreign monarchy, to domestic representative democracy. Or like that speech yesterday, by President Obama, which we called the movement 50 years ago to shift from oppression to freedom, from disenfranchisement 
to the vote. How are you going to legitimize regime change? When you're delegitimizing one regime, how do you legitimize the next? And that's what's going on in 1 Samuel. So before we get too far along, we better get into this. So 1 Samuel, let me show you. There's actually, we're going to have to skim through it pretty quickly. But here's the thing, is if it goes too fast for you, never mind. I will be putting devotionals up on the website uh, all this week. I hope I'm finally caught up. I think I'm finally caught up. Last night at about 8 o'clock, I finally caught up. So hopefully this week you'll have devotionals that will rehearse all of this territory. But let's take a look at it. What we always want to ask first is, what did God say to them? Now, the first thing, this passage, we're going to look at, seven, we're going to survey seven chapters of 1 Samuel. Bird's eye view. Seven chapters. And he does two things. First Samuel is concerned to legitimize the religious system. And then it's going to legitimize the political system. And here's why. Unlike today, like the Holy Roman Empire, in Israel at the time, it was the religious leader, Samuel, Eli, Samuel, who's going to appoint the king. So before you can legitimize the politics, you've got to legitimize the religion. And worse still, Samuel is going to basically overthrow or usurp the previous prophetic leader, Eli. So Eli's lineage is going to give way to Samuel's. And then Samuel is going to try and institute a whole new form of government. So it requires heavy legitimization. And that's what happens in these chapters. So chapter 1 to 2, uh, some of you may remember the story. What we have here is, you know, Hannah, a devout woman, childless. In those days, horrific. No meaning to her life. She has no child. She goes every year, they go up to Shiloh, to the temple where the tabernacle of God is. They go up and worship. And she's there and she's pouring her heart out before God. And she wants a baby. And Eli the prophet who's there sees her pouring out her heart. He sees her lips moving. He can't hear what she's saying. He thinks she's drunk. And he scolds her. And she says, no, 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 no. I'm not drunk. I'm praying that God's going to give me a baby. And so he blesses her and sends her on her way. And we read these words in chapter 1, verses 14 to 17. Eli thought she was drunk. And he said to her, how long are you going to stay drunk, drunk in church? Put away your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I'm a woman who is deeply troubled. I've not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. There's a perceptive pastor. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here in my great anguish and grief. And Eli says to her, Go in peace. May the God of Israel grant you what you've asked of him. What qualifies Samuel to be the head prophet, the head judge in all of Israel? The first thing that qualifies him is his miraculous birth. The second thing that qualifies him is his sincere devotion. In that time, Eli was the head priest, the head prophet, the head judge. His children were supposed to take over from him. It was a hereditary position. And then 1 Samuel explains, they delegitimizes Eli's children. It explains what there was, you know, these guys are, they get, how do they survive? People come and make an offering. They offer the fat to the Lord. They burn the fat on the altar. They cook the meat, and they give some of the meat to the priests, to Eli's children. 
Well, they can't wait for their share. While it's still cooking, they stick their fork in the worshiper's pot and pull out the meat they want. It's like, you know, you all know this, right? I don't want to be too sensitive, but you all know that I get kind of compensated by this church for this ministry I do. It'd be like me standing up here and, and when the ushers collect the offering and then they bring it back to be collected, I know I just reach in and grab a handful of cash as it's going out there. It's, do you think I'd be preaching here the next week? And so this text, you know, here are these guys, the priests, they're supposed to take over. And here's what the text says about them. This sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offerings with contempt. But Samuel was ministering before the Lord. He was just a boy with a little make-believe linen effort. He was dressed up in a costume like a priest as a little boy serving while these wicked teenagers or, or, or young men were ripping off the worshipers. So here's a second reason why he was legitimized. It's because of his sincere devotion in the midst of their wickedness. And a third, in chapter 3 we read this. You know, some of you would remember this story. Don't worry if you don't, I'll give you some of it. Samuel's laying in bed one night and somebody, he hears a voice call his name. And the only other person in the, in the building was Eli. So he runs over to Eli and says, yeah, what do you want? And Eli says, I didn't call you. So Samuel goes back to bed. Then Samuel. So he runs back to Eli. What, what do you want? And he says, I don't want anything. I didn't call you. Go back to bed. And then a third time, the voice. Samuel. And he runs over to Eli. And Eli finally catches on, perceptive priest, finally catches on and says, hey, look, it's not me. It must be God. Go back to bed. And, and next time the voice calls your name, say, yes, Lord, I'm listening. And there is the beginning of Eli's direct call from God. And this is the third thing that justifies him taking authority, religious authority over all of Israel. It's first there was the miraculous birth, and then there was his sincerity of devotion, and thirdly there was his divine commissioning. He is the rightful priest, the rightful judge, the rightful prophet over all of Israel. And that's important, because the next thing he has to do is to legitimize the political system. Because they're shifting from having a judge to having a monarchy. And maybe you remember this story too. You know, we've got all these stories in our general background if you've been a Christian for a while, but we don't know how they fit together. But you remember the story, as, as Pastor David read it in this scripture reading, you've got this story of Israel goes to war. They've got these pestering, pestering uh, neighbors, the Philistines, and, and they were at, at odds, and, and Israel got beat. So what do they do? They grab the Ark of the Covenant. You know, readers of the Lost Ark and all that. No, 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 it's not that, but it, it's about the thing. It, it, the, the, the most religious relic in Israel's possession, the Ark of the Covenant, with the Ten Commandments inside, and the, the uh, rod of Aaron inside. They grab the Ark of the Covenant and they take that into battle because now they've got God legitimizing them. They've got God on their side. And they bring God in the battle, and God is going to fight for them. And they bring God in this battle, and they get whooped. And the Philistines confiscate that ark. Now, if you're alive a thousand years B.C., what does that mean? 
Yeah, this is a wimpy God. Yahweh, he can't, you know, he can't help his people. The Philistines' God is so much bigger. So what do the Philistines do? They, that's what they see. So they take the Ark of the Covenant and they bring it into their temple. And then what happens in chapter 5 is they bring the Ark of the Covenant before their God to say, our God is big and your God is little. And the next morning they get up and their God's toppled over. So they put their God back up. And the next day they come back and now that God is toppled over, he's headless and he's limbless. What's the message of this text? God would not legitimize Israel in chapter 4. God delegitimized Israel in chapter 4. They are not his people. He's not, well, he's not fighting for them. They're not in a good relationship with him. He's not fighting for them. And in chapter 5, the point is this. Why did Israel lose? Not because God's not strong enough. God wins when he fights alone. He doesn't need Israel to fight for him. They're lost because God had refused to fight for Israel. And so, you know, what happens with the Philistines? As you go through chapter 5 and chapter 6, they, the people of Ashdod, they, they don't want this God in their temple anymore. He's beaten up on their God. So they say, oh, some other city, you take him. And the second city takes him. And then everybody starts getting tumors. We don't want this God. You take him. And they give him to another city in the Philistia. And then that city starts getting sick. And finally they say, look, and they, they make golden tumors as, as a kind of a, a, a repentance thing. They put all the, they put the ark on a ox, on a cart with ox drying, and they drove it out of the Philistia. And they drove it back to Israel. Now Israel doesn't want this thing nearby. They stick it in one town and they avoid it. Because this is dangerous. This is all about the legitimization of the political system. And what God has said through all of this is, Israel's political system is delegitimized. Philistia, the Philistines' political system is delegitimized. And in chapter 7, what we have is Samuel, the prophet of God, leads the people in repentance. And they repent. And their enemies attack. And they don't even have to fight. God defeats their enemies. What we have here is clear legitimization of Samuel as God's spokesperson and legitimization of this politically. Not the ark, not magic, not talisman, but repentance. When they had the ark and no repentance, they lost the battle, even though they fought when they didn't have the ark and they did have repentance, they won the battle without fighting because God won on their part. Do you see what's happening in 1 Samuel 1-7? to Is God is legitimizing Samuel as the prophet and he's calling the country to live in such a way that they can have a relationship with him. And he's calling the king to govern in such a way that he can be legitimized as a leader of the government. Now, what does any of this have to do with 21st century Americans? Let me suggest two things. And we're to talk still in terms of these same two ideas. Well, first of all, do you understand when you re read the Gospel of Luke that Luke is using 1 Samuel to legitimize Jesus? How was 
Samuel legitimized. Jesus is legitimized the same way. Luke chapter 1 verse, and chapter 2. You have a miraculous birth. And in 1 Samuel, we have a miraculous birth followed by one speech by the mother. In Luke chapter 1 and 2, you've got a miraculous birth followed by, or you have two miraculous births, John the Baptist and Jesus, followed by four speeches. If Samuel was legitimate, Jesus is way legitimate. In 1 Samuel 2, why was Samuel legitimate? Because of his sincere devotion. And the text says, and Samuel grew in stature and in wisdom and in favor with God and man. And what do you have in chapter 2 of Luke? Jesus goes to the temple. His parents can't find him. They find him there. The rabbis are impressed with his understanding. And it ends with the same quote from 1 Samuel. And Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And then you have the divine commissioning of Samuel. And you have the divine commissioning of Jesus as he goes to John the Baptist. And the spirit descends on him. And God says about him, this is my son. The son of God, the kings were called the son of God. This is my son. Not the political government, but Jesus. Luke chapters 1 and 3 goes back to 1 Samuel and uses that narrative to legitimize Jesus. This is the first thing that, that this whole, that 1 Samuel tells us is they were disappointed in their kings and we will always be disappointed in our presidents. You can get a thick volume. I've tried to buy it, but it's over $100. I don't want it at that price. The corruption of American presidents throughout, throughout American history. Virtually every president is listed in this book in forms of corruption that came in through his government, under his government. I mean, your politicians will always disappoint you. First Samuel is saying. Luke is saying, Jesus will never disappoint you. The second point we learn from this, though, we really do want to keep religion out of politics. Or our government won't keep religion out of politics. But when our government uses religion to defend politics, we want to keep, keep it in hand's distance. We, CPAC recently occurred. Uh, the, the, the annual CPAC, Conservative Political Action Committee. Now, in years past, it's conservative, right? Mm -hmm. Red. So in years past, you'd have a lot of religious speakers getting up there because the Republican Party was trying to nurture the uh, evangelical Christians to vote Republican. Even, Ronald Reagan was a wizard at it, even though he wasn't evangelical. Now CPAC is kind of getting leery of the evangelicals because they don't want to endorse all of our positions. Whether you're Republican or Democrat, be very careful. Don't get sucked into this. The only thing that even legitimized the ancient kings of God's own people, Israel, was this. Repentance and godliness. Not the ark. Not the name of God. Repentance and godliness. Don't get sucked into the use of religion for political ends. And the third thing we learned from this. Eli, Eli's lineage was delegitimized because of their corruption. And Samuel was legitimized at the same time. Wouldn't you think that Samuel would learn the lesson? But when we get into chapter 8, you know what you find? Samuel's sons were corrupt, just like Eli's sons had been. We have legitimacy in our faith, only as it's sincere. Not by going to church, 
Not by going to seminary. Not by teaching Sunday school. Not by being a pastor. But only as we serve God, worship Him, and live for Him. This is what 1 Samuel tells us. It's what we already know, I suppose. But it's a fresh reminder from an unusual source that God calls us to be suspicious of any politicians who uses faith to win election. And God calls us to be suspicious of ourselves if we claim to be his people and don't follow him. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would be with us, that our faith and our politics might honor you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please rise with me as we respond in worship.